Welcome to Liberty in America, Past, Present, and Future with Dr. Bill Joby. Doc is a historian and a reenactor. On this show, you'll hear his thoughts about our personal liberties from their earliest recorded beginnings. You'll also be transported back to the 1750s to relive the life of Colonel George Washington and his adventures during the French and Indian War. Let's get started. Here's Dr. Bill Choby. Hi there, Dr. Bill Choby again. We're talking about liberty in America, past, present, and future, prescription for America. And today's topic, one of the series, is the early American history of what I'd like to do is to sort of go through some of the uh, maybe the less known history of our country that really set the stage for the development of uh, uh, freedom under the rule of law. And um, after we, our last session, we talked about how the, uh, the Knights Templar had been here in North America after the Vikings. And then later on, uh, Columbus uh, came through and he, he established more of the southern or southern parts of the North American continent. But uh, later on, of course, we had a lot of explorers and followed their footsteps and uh, began to lay out some claims to this land. So in uh, 1603, King James of England uh, issued a claim on the land that was west of the Mid-Atlantic area uh, that uh, went in to who knows how far. They did know there was a river out there, the Mississippi River. And so they just claimed all this land for themselves based upon um, squatters' rights, I suppose. And in between that, of course, there was uh, whole uh, groups of uh, Indians and uh, uh, settlements along the way. And they, of course, didn't have any boundaries to their land because they, they didn't really have any need for titles or, or uh, maps or anything like that. They just existed. And along um, after that uh, colony was established in Virginia and uh, the um, it had somewhat some success, but eventually it disappeared, and uh, because of conflict with uh, with the, the local natives. But uh, later on, a, another group decided that it wanted to set up a uh, a colony in the northern uh, North America. And after a lot of uh, difficulties and ups and downs with the, the Church of England and the King, and and uh, spending time in, in the Netherlands, they, uh, the group of separatists who didn't believe in organized religion, uh, they just had their Bibles to follow. Uh, they set out on the Mayflower, and they were working their way across the Atlantic when the fierce storm blew them off course. And uh, after it was over, they ended up on the shores of Lake Cod, or Cape Cod, um, establishing a, or attempting to establish a, a place there in 1627. Uh, incidentally, the Plymouth Rock that they landed on, um, I've visited that, and that rock is uh, clearly visible today. It's not underwater, and from what I hear, it's still not underwater for all the people who think that global warming is going to cause the, us to be inundated with uh, extra water. It just, it's still there, and it's the same as it was how many centuries? Four centuries ago. So the uh, the, the Plymouth colony, um, many of them died on the way. Uh, many were sick with dysentery and, and uh, other diseases, particularly scurvy, which is a lack of vitamin C. Of course, they didn't know that. But uh, when they got there, they, they eked out a living for that first year under the concept of, of uh, equity that everybody would have the same. And it was uh, sort of like what, what it was with the acts of the apostles and everybody sharing, share and share alike kind of thing. 
Well, it, it was certainly a different situation than it was with the Acts of the Apostles, because they many of them died from starvation. As a result of it, there was insufficient food. And although they had communal gardens and things, there was, there was still not enough food. So the following year, uh, the governor uh, decided that he would get uh, parcels of land, uh, 10 acres or so per person, and each was on their own to grow their own food uh, for the following year. Now, at this time, of course, they were trying to farm in a typical, typical European fashion, and they weren't very successful at it. But uh, one day along came this uh, Indian fellow, a young brave, his name was Squanto. And Squanto had a, an interesting backstory. As a young lad, he was picked up by some of the uh, English explorers and taken back to Europe, uh, back to Spain, and, and put on a slave block. And uh, the, along came a, a group of monks, and they, they bought him. And they educated him, raised him up. And when he became a young man, he made his way back to England. And uh, after learning the language and, and getting along with some of the sea captains, he found his way back to North America. Well, the land that the pilgrims landed on had already been cleared by the Algonquin Indians who had had a settlement there prior to this. But uh, unfortunate for the Indians, they contracted smallpox brought to them by the, uh, the explorers, the European explorers, and it wiped them out. So the land was considered to be cursed by the Indians, and they abandoned it. And this was the land the pilgrims walked into, and they saw it as a blessing that all this land was cleared, ready for them to move into it. Well, the second year, with uh, the governor's uh, direction, they uh, and with Swantu, who showed him how to plant corn, and you know the familiar story of putting a fish down in the ground with the, with the corn seed, and made it grow better, and shot him showed him how to catch eels out of the the bogs when the tide was low, and they had enough food that they actually had abundance, and it's out of this abundance that they had the very first Thanksgiving, and one we you know continually celebrate even to this day. Uh, but it was through the efforts of uh, the providential hand of, of God that led Squanto from the slave block to be saved by monks to come back to America to save the, the, the colony of the pilgrims. So pretty remarkable kind of event that, you know, you can't say that anybody just made this stuff up, but it happened. So here we are with the, the, the pilgrims. The big thing that they brought along with this was that when they were on their little ship off the shore, they were out of the um, uh, jurisdiction of the king. So they created a little compact among themselves. We know of it as, as the Mayflower Compact. And it was the first time ever that a group of people freely chose to, to uh, create the laws upon which they would live. And that, that had uh, set a pattern that would be repeated over and over again in the colonies, that you can make up your own laws. You don't have to wait for the king to tell you what to do. And remember, we said, when might is right, uh, you're in bondage. Well, these people say, well, we're gonna, our laws are going to be right, therefore we'll be free. Just, just see the thread here. Just see how that, that came about. People, when given the option, they'd rather be free than to be told what to do, particularly with bad laws, when might is right. So at the same time, then you had the French were exploring the Great Lake regions, and they and they had a, uh, an explorer called La Salle, who had uh, been looking for passageways through the, to the interior of the continent uh, from the Great Lakes, and he found that there was a creek that was a short portage from the, the southern shore of Lake Erie that would take him into uh, eventually the Allegheny River. That creek was called French Creek. 
And uh, he established a, a settlement there and later became Fort LeBeuf for the, the French military. But down that creek, uh, which was navigable by canoe, he made it to the Allegheny, which he named the Belle Rivera, the beautiful river. And from down the Allegheny, he made it to where the, there was a confluence of the Mongahela and the Allegheny, which became the Ohio River. Of course, we know the Ohio River uh, connected with the Mississippi that went to the Gulf of Mexico. So LaSalle's great uh, exploration and his great claim to the land for the French king was that any little tributary that contributed water to that watershed belonged to the French. Well, you can see how this uh, this quest for land is now starting to crisscross uh, the different uh, people with claims to it. The Brits had their uh, version, or their, now they were Virginians, had their idea that their land uh, given to them went back as far west as the Mississippi River and as far north as the Great Lakes. And, um, of course, the uh, in between, we had a native tribe of the, the Six Nations of the Iroquois, and uh, and further down in the uh, Allegheny Mongahela area, there were other Indians, the Senecas, etc. The Six Nation of the Iroquois they would govern themselves by this this loose set of laws. But the um, bottom line was that they were warriors. So if you didn't get along, you, they would kill you. So they're they in a in a way they had when might is right. Uh, they're in bondage, but they kept themselves together under those terms. Further down, as we got into the western parts of uh, Pennsylvania, the the uh, Indian tribes were considered to be more farmers, and the the, uh, the warrior Iroquois would call them women because they weren't uh, they weren't the warring type, if you will. So this land's occupied by the Ohio country, which is. Uh, down along the what we'd call the Pittsburgh area. Now you have the Delawares, the Shawnees, the Mingos, Mongahelians, and um, later we'll see that, like for example, the Mongahelians were, were wiped out by smallpox by their interactions with the French fur traders and the Jesuits that came along to uh, Christianize them. But the, uh, the the Six Nations of the Iroquois here mostly Mohawks, Onditas, uh, Ondekas, uh, Cayagas, Senecas and Tuscarorians, and they occupied most of Western uh, Europe, as we know it, and the upper parts of uh, Pennsylvania today. So here we have this uh, the claims to these land that eventually uh, was going to be settled by one group or another, and the French started to uh, make inroads of uh, with their military of, of uh, believing that they could set up forts from the French uh, Creek down to the Belle Rivere to um, the confluence with the Mongahela and the Ohio and the whole way down to Mississippi to you know to begin fur trading and then just uh, settling in as uh, squatters. Well, when word got back to Virginia, there was uh, concerns about what the, uh, the the Virginia claims were given to them by King James and that they thought it was important that somebody go up and tell them that uh, this was the land of the English. Well, when they were trying to find somebody to go, uh, there were, weren't too many options because you have to understand that life was short at the time and very few people had the resources to take the time to, uh, to do something like this. But there were small bands of, of Virginia militia and one of those uh, members of that uh, those bands was George Washington. Now, George, uh, he had a rough life at first. He was 11 years old. His father died. He was considered to be the man of the house. And he didn't go to school. So he had to learn. Basically, he was homeschooled by a mom. 
And, uh, but his neighbor was Lord Fairfax, who was the largest landowner in Western Virginia, and in Virginia, actually, in all the colonies. And he took George under his wing, and, and George would go with him, and they would survey the lands of uh, Lord Fairfax. And on the way, they, they spent a lot of time together in the wilderness, and George learned to ride horses. And at that time, George was introduced to fox hunting, which was the first organized sport in America. And that was set about by Lord Fairfax. Well, that became important because later on, uh, the contacts that George made with fox hunting, the fox hunting fraternity all up and down the colonies made him a familiar face when it came to discussions of where this country was going in its earliest stages. But I diverse. Let me come back. <laughs> okay. So here we have Governor Dinwiddie of Virginia in, in uh, Williamsburg. He said, we have to send somebody out there to tell the French that they're on our land. And uh, we don't really know who to take, but George was selected. Uh, and off he went, and he took along with him uh, uh, a number of, of uh, uh, people with the staff, and he ran into over the, when he came over the Allegheny Plateau, he, he ran into Christopher Gist, G-I-S-T, who was sort of a, a figure like uh, like uh, Hawkeye and the last of the Mohicans, if you will. And with Gist and uh, George, they made their way down to, uh, through the Mongahela, down to the uh, confluence with the Allegheny. And they had some uh, meetings with uh, uh, Queen Aliquippa, who was the queen of the local tribes, or the, the Aliquippan tribes. And they offered some gifts and stuff. And uh, George offered her a little bit of rum, and she really liked them for that. So at that meeting, then, he came across this other fellow who was the half-king, or sort of like the local governor. They called him half-king, who knows why. His real name was uh, Tanaka Raisin. And Tanaka Raisin had a really uh, interesting backstory because when he was a young lad, his father was uh, trading with the French uh, fur traders and they had a dispute over something rather. And that dispute led to violence. Uh, the uh, Tanaka Raisin's father was, was uh, bound and, and tortured until he died. And then they just, the French guys dismembered him and they boiled him and ate him. And here you have this young Indian boy watching this happen. And you can only imagine how, how much anger he kept in his heart over this. But um, here he came along and he accompanied Tanaka Raisin Company, to Christopher Giss and George. And they made their way up to uh, south shores of Lake Erie to French Creek. Um, and they met the commandant of Fort LeBeouf, which was called uh, Fort Buffalo, literally, because there were Buffalo in the area of Western Pennsylvania uh, for many years after, as a matter of fact. But that was a common sight to have Buffalo here. And um, during this, his discussion with the officers, he presented this, this uh, information, a letter from Dinwiddie saying, this is our land and you know, please respect us and all that sort of thing. Well, the commandant just laughed at him. The officers laughed at him and said, you know, who's this... Uh, this uh, hillbilly coming up here and telling us what to do. We're already here and we've got all these munitions and everything. But, but to be courteous, they invited him to dine with the officers that night. And the officers got thoroughly drunk and George didn't. And he watched everything and kept track of everything and counted the number of, of horses and wagons and cannons and all that sort of stuff. And then the next morning, he makes his way along with Christopher Gister, making their way back through the, the forest. Now, mind you, this is in December of 1753. And it was not the uh, Western Pennsylvania winters can be pretty harsh, but uh, on their way back, uh, one of the, uh, the Indians came at him with a, a musket shot at him 15 yards away and missed. 
And um, George wanted to, to uh, or Gist wanted to kill him. And George says, no, let's just get out of here. So they left their horses who were, were too weak to move. And they took off through the, the afternoon and night on foot, making their way south as quickly as they can to put some distance between themselves from the Indians who were sure to follow. But the uh, by the next morning, they made their way to the shores of the Allegheny River. And they spent the better part of a day trying to make a raft with a simple hatchet. Uh, by late afternoon, they had this thing bound together and they started to cross the river uh, in haste, thinking that you know right behind them could be a, a, a number of people out to kill them. And halfway across the river, the Allegheny River, today it's in the area of what's called Etna, the suburb of Pittsburgh, if you will. And uh, George's pole got stuck in the bottom. And with the, the ice in the river, mind you, again, that we were into the middle of the Little Ice Age or coming out of the Little Ice Age. So ice was very prominent, large falls of ice coming down the river. Uh, caught him and threw him into water and about 10 feet of water. And he I guess drug him back on this little raft and they made their way to a little island in the middle of the river where they spent the night. It was not uh, a pleasant one. The temperatures were in the low twenties and uh, guess got uh, frostbite in his fingers and George slept like a baby. And he, he recorded the next morning they got off and they were able, got up and they were able to walk off the rest, the second half of the river on ice uh, rather than uh, using their raft. From there, they made their way back to uh, Virginia to report to Dinwiddie, or, and uh, they did. And the, the uh, record of that, of course, Washington submitted his journal, and that became an international hit. So here's this, you know, this country bumpkin kind of guy. All of a sudden, he's known all over the, you know, the, the civilized world for what he did. Well, following that, uh, they sort of figured that there's uh, George had to take some more soldiers back and, and establish a presence. They, he recognized or said that there would be a good place to, place to put a fort at uh, the point there between the Mongahela and the Allegheny. And uh, there were, <clears throat> their attempts were then come together to uh, make their way back in the following year of spring of 54. Uh, when they came back up to the plateau of the, the Allegheny uh, Mountains, there was a great meadow there, a very uh, open, natural field. And uh, they, they uh, spent time there and camped until one day out of the blue comes this Tanaka Raisin guy that we remember we talked about him before. And he said, the French are coming after you. And he said, well, George says, well, what, what do you mean? And he said, well, there's uh, about 40 French soldiers uh, are coming here to find you. And uh, excuse me a second. <coughs> uh, they're coming to find you and you better do something about it. Well, George says, well, it sounds like a hostile action. Let's go get them. So through the darkness and through the rain, they got lost a couple of times on the way. And then by daylight, they had found where the French uh, forces had encamped. And they surrounded on three sides with the Virginians of George and on the fourth side by the uh, the companions of Tanaka Raisin. Prior to this uh, uh, awakening, uh, one of the French soldiers had left camp barefoot to relieve himself, and he wasn't caught up in the uh, ensnaring trap. Well, as the French soldiers rose and they looked and they saw that they were surrounded, one grabbed for a rifle. And when that happened, George issued a, an order to fire, and uh, a number of the Frenchmen were killed and captured. And the commandant of that little company was Ensign J. V. Now, the ensign had two letters in his pocket. One was 
to tell George and company to please vacate the land. And the other one was get the hell off our land, you know, a more forceful letter. So although uh, Jean-Wan-V is wounded, he's up against a tree and they're trying to talk to him in French and interpretations or whatever have you. And then uh, suddenly Tanaka Raisin raises his tomahawk and he says, but you are not yet dead, my father, to the instant Jean-Wan-V. And he strikes him in the skull with his tomahawk, busted the skull wide open. He, and Tanaka Raisin took his brains out, washed his hands in the brains of the ensign, and then ate him. And George is standing here watching, like, what are you doing? And, and he, he gets sick of seeing this thing happen. And he, and he retched. But it, it, it happened. And so they figured, well, we better get out of here. So they, they took their prisoners and they made it back to the Great Meadows, anticipating a retaliation, and which was sure to come. Uh, it wasn't long after that that another contingent, larger contingent, uh, contingency of French soldiers found them, along with a lot of other Indians, who were more than happy to get these two sides fighting with one another so they'd get off their land. And they're sort of playing each side off to one another, hoping that they would, you know, beat each other up and then go away and then let, let them alone with the hunting grounds and everything that they had. But it wasn't that simple. So they surrounded the, uh, this field and that George had constructed this fort of necessity out of, it was a, a stockade force with basically poles stuck in the ground in a circle. And in the center, there's a little, a little cabin that they threw their, their uh, uh, skins and stuff over to keep it dry. And that's where their powder was. And that's where their rum was and their food stuff. And so while they're waiting for this attack, expecting that they would have to all go out and line up in the field and have a, traditionally a European style uh, confrontation, they uh, found that the French and the Indians didn't want to play that way. So instead, the, the little fort was just far enough or close enough, I should say, to the woods and the trees, the stones and all those sorts of things that the Indians and the French hid behind that they, they could rain down fire on these little guys as long as they wanted to. And, and the, the Brits, the, the Virginians, had very little recourse, very little cover. Well, seeing that they were taking a lot of casualties, they retreated back into the stockade and they hit the, the uh, cachet of rum and they got royally drunk. And it was, it was a nightmare. So it looked like a total defeat for George. But out of the blue, this is July 4th, 1754. Out of the blue is this intense thunderstorm that comes up. And it was so intense that all the powder that they had on both sides got wet. And they, basically, the little skirmish turned out to be uh, rained out. And uh, the French then uh, and the Indians decided that, uh, and George decided that they ought to talk about this. So they had a little parlay. And in the darkness, uh, the French drew up a document, uh, Articles of Capitulation. And uh, George unknowingly uh, signed it without really understanding it because it was in French and he wasn't fluent in French. And at the very end of it, it says that uh, he assassinated the Ensign Gemonville. And of course, we know it was Hanaka Raisin who killed him. But uh, by signing this, George pretty much admitted that he did it. He didn't know that, but they gave him their, their horses and their guns. They said, right, go home, don't come back for two years. Well, uh, so that word got back through the French back to Fort Duquesne, made its way up to uh, the Great Lakes, found its way back to France, and the French and Indian War was off and running, the First World War uh, known. All in the backwoods of Pennsylvania, uh, 
by just crazy things happening. It wasn't like an admiral or a general or two armies facing off. It was just a little skirmish. And one uh, one person who just hated the French, and more than likely because back to when they tortured and killed his dad, that he just wanted to get even. And shortly after, the he, he did have that uh, return to Great Meadows, so waiting for the, the French company to arrive. Sanaka Raisin disappeared. So... You know, he set him up, he set George up, and George, George took the fall. Okay, <laughs> French and Indian War then began to rage uh, wildly with, uh, with first an expedition by General Braddock, uh, English general. George wanted to be a, uh, an English officer, never could because he was never in England, so he became an aide-de-camp. And along with General Braddock, uh, he advised him on how to deal with this kind of warfare, but Braddock wouldn't listen to him. Eventually, they had this group of soldiers that were not far from Fort Duquesne outside of Pittsburgh. Today, that would be close to what's called Kennywood Park. Of course, the river was low because they didn't have these uh, dams in it like they do today. They could basically walk across the river. It was August and July, August, that this happened in 1756. And what happened, the French and the Indians had the advantage of height uh, on the hillside above the, the river, and they hid behind the trees and rocks, and they just decimated the British forces. The, the, uh, uh, the um, Braddock pushed them forward and uh, just pushed them to their death. And, and you know, George had four bullet holes in his coat and one through his hat and two horses out from under him. And yet he survived. And while the other officers had taken, uh, they were injured or killed, George was, was unscathed. And the, uh, the Indians uh, sharpshooters uh, later would say that, uh, you know, they tried to kill him many times. It's like 20 plus firings out of it. They couldn't get him. And uh, the little leader of the, the Indian sharpshooters basically said, look, leave that guy alone. He's protected by the great spirits and someday he'll be a great warrior. But because he was one of the few remaining, and, and Braddock was shot uh, there out of his horse too, and um, he George was given the, the, the task of retreating um, and taking all the you know what was left back to the uh, Great Meadows area uh, to you know reassess what they've done and where they're going next. Well, now we have uh, a need for soldiers. We have a need for the Virginians to get involved. And in order to do this, Governor Dinwiddie, he set out this edict, if you will, is that anybody that wants to join the exploration of the western parts of Virginia, now known as western Pennsylvania, the Ohio country, uh, that they'd be granted land if they were to go and to uh, volunteer for service. And after their service was completed, they'd be given uh, like 10 acres of land in, in western Pennsylvania. Uh, and so there were some conscripts that way. And, and of course, the people that were available to, to uh, fight were not of uh, you know, the best physical shape or of the best morals. Uh, many of them were trying to get out of jail by, by joining the military. But I mean, that, be that as it made us what it was. And so um, the um, this uh, skirmish went on. And that, that after the, the loss of General Braddock, it was a very significant victory in that it basically told the colonists that, you know, this is the most, the mightiest army in the world which just got beat by a bunch of uh, Indian bandits and, and French guys hiding behind trees and like what, how, how important or how powerful can they be? And in the back of their mind, the colonists are thinking, well, gee, you know, maybe we ought to think about 
how they treat us as well, because the colonies were of inferior stock, as you well know, according to the Brits, this was their land, if you will. But there was resentment because when might is right, you're in bondage and the might of the, of the, the British Empire uh, wasn't always very kind to the colonists. So here we go. And the uh, along the next, uh, well, the next uh, expedition was by General Forbes. And rather than following the Nemecolon Trail that uh, Braddock had followed, now, mind you, Nemecolon Trail was an Indian trail that was east and west through the, the southern part of the, the Pennsylvania uh, uh, country. Uh, many times these trails were those that were established by Indians who, and they followed buffalo. So buffalo were huge herds, you know, they made a trail. So, you know, why make your own trail? You just follow the buffalo. So that was the Nemecolon Trail. But Braddock, uh, rather than following that, that trail, he decided that, uh, I'm sorry, Forbes, rather than following that trail, because by now they had a fort established at Bedford, PA, a Fort Bedford, they figured they were just going to go up and over the mountains and make their own roads. And so, of course, George objected to that, and but eventually he was uh, overruled, and uh, General Forbes set the men out, and they cut their way through the uh, to the front range of the Allegheny Mountains, and they found a, a pass that they could get through and would block and tackle. They hauled all their artillery and, and things up the mountain. And along the way, they set up a little uh, here and there, little bivouac areas and a little forest. And you can follow that pathway today. Uh, it basically, Forbes Trail follows the outline of Route 30, U.S. Route 30, uh, from east to west uh, from the Bedford area into uh, Pittsburgh. So this originally was Forbes, General Forbes and his expedition, and George was a part of it, but um, he wasn't, uh, again, a, an officer of the British Army. He was a, a Virginia colonel by this time. Uh, he had risen in rank because the previous colonel had died, and he was the next in line to take command. So, you know, again, another uh, incident, if you will, another thing that happened that who can say. But uh, with, uh, with Forbes, they made their way over the Allegheny Mountain and down into the, the other side of Laurel Mountain. They set up an encampment at the Loyal Hannah River and uh, along uh, of east-west uh, trail of the Shawnee and at a crossroads of the Catawba Trail, which went north-south from Lake Erie down into the Carolinas. And there was Indian trading trails, so there, there was already somebody there. Well, while they were there on October 12th of 1758, they were attacked by the English, or by the French and the Indians. And uh, although they successfully defended themselves at the fort, they lost a lot of livestock. Well, George Washington's coming over the mountain with the next group of, uh, of oxen and horses and such. So he wasn't a part of that. But when he got there, uh, there had, was another attack on the, the fort at Loyal Hannah. And this time, uh, General Forbes sent Colonel Mercer out with his Virginians to uh, engage at a distance from the fort to protect the livestock. And this uh, engagement went on for hours. And later on, Forbes then selected uh, George Washington to go and get another bunch of Virginians, a couple hundred, and to flank the uh, engagement and, and set a route to the French and the Indians. Late afternoon, they made that uh, their way up to the uh, flank the, the, the battle, and sent, he sent a uh, messenger ahead to inform General or Colonel Mercer that they were coming. But in in the darkness and in the, the smoke, 
and the fog of war that that uh, messenger didn't get through. And so when Washington's uh, soldiers encountered Mercer's soldiers, they thought these were enemies and a fratricide uh, incident occurred. Uh, and Washington, realizing this, what was happening, ran between the lines, knocking these uh, guns up in the air, the presented pieces and with his sword. And uh, later he would say he was never in greater danger of his life. 30 some soldiers were killed, a couple of officers, and to this day, nobody knows where they were buried, but there's some modern day uh, archaeological uh, excavations going on there that's, that's uh, finding a whole bunch of really interesting information that we'll probably get later on, but I don't want to get lost in that. Uh, the important thing is that uh, the, the um, through this Western Pennsylvania with, uh, uh, with what had happened, uh, through dealing between the, the six nations of the Iroquois and dealing with all this land that was unclaimed, untouched, and uh, through the, the people that were warring over it uh, emerged a, uh, a character in George. And that and he was, because of these experiences, um, he, had, he was the only one in the colonies that had any real experience. But uh, after they... they uh, succeeded or they stopped the event with Mercer. They captured two uh, two or three uh, people with the French and they were told that the French were abandoning the fort. The Indians were going home and General Forbes then elevated Washington to a field grade uh, brigadier general and George then took the troops down to near Pittsburgh. And when they got within 10 miles, the magazines at the fort were exploded, all the gunpowders exploded. And when they finally arrived at the fort, uh, Fort Duquesne, they saw that the British had, uh, the French had abandoned it. So the war in Western Pennsylvania was over and uh, largely the key figure was George Washington. So the, um, but the hostilities in the French and Indian war carried on throughout the world. It was in, Part of it was done in Germany, and when the French and the Germans were tied up in war, it meant that they couldn't send soldiers over here. So there was, it was really fortuitous that it was a world war because that you know the, the hapless uh, colonists would not have been able to uh, sustain long-term kind of uh, conflicts with the French, uh, given that uh, the, the hardship of the frontier and also the, the animosity of the uh, the Indians. Well, what's the bottom line? <coughs> Excuse me. War cost a lot of money, and the British uh, and the French were heavily in debt uh, at that time. And because of their debt, they had to resolve it in order to keep their books right and to preserve the value of their currency. Well, the French uh, foreign minister, a fellow by the name of Etienne, he decided that he was going to tax the rich. You know, you know. <laughs> We've heard that before. And, but the Brits decided they were going to tax the colonists, and they came up with a bunch of different uh, acts of parliament that laid uh, taxes on everything from playing cards to tea and, and everything in between. And this, of course, rubbed the colonists the wrong way. And because of this debt and because the, the might of the British Army and the, and the British Empire uh, was being forced on them they felt that they were in bondage to it and that there was no representation for them to go and say anything at all to the king about what they thought about things and that they were forced to have soldiers kept in their home supposedly to protect them from the indians and any other uprisings so the uh, uh, uh attitudes towards them uh, radically set off a, a, a sequence of events that as we well know uh started the american revolution so uh, I'm going to save the next couple of uh, uh, stories on that. Uh, 
as time goes on, we'll, we'll get to that next in, in the next series. So remember, when might is right, you live in bondage. When right is might, you live in freedom. When right becomes wrong, you live in chaos until either might becomes right or right becomes might. And uh, the choice is ours. So signing off, thanks so much for your time, and I hope you enjoyed this series. Thank you.